Hello everyone. You know what I love when you record a podcast and you think, yes, yes, I'm finally going to get it out on time. Hooray. And then Audacity messes it up. Well, to be fair, you mess it up by changing the settings on Audacity that you don't really understand. And then when everything's finished, you realize, oh no, wait, that's going to mess it up. And then you have to do it all over again. That's what I love. Anyway, this week, we're going to talk about why children misbehave. And there's a reason for it. It's not a reason I expected. And it's it's not going to be a popular reason. It's definitely worth hearing, though. And I, I sympathize with you. If if I had heard this podcast a few years ago, I would have been like, I don't know about that. But we, I've done the research. There is a reason children misbehave. Um, and yes, I've changed the ways. Is it, here's the thing. Here's the thing in, in Mr. M's world. I have been writing a blog post and then writing a different podcast and then caring for my nine-week-old you know, 50-50 with my wife. I've been running a private teaching business. I've been creating assessment materials and I've been marking year six sats. It's it's a very busy time and it's taking its toll. So for the next few weeks, at least, the podcast and the blog post are going to become one glorious, I can't say one glorious whole, that's a terrible phrase, but they're going to become one. So if you've read the podcast, you've read the podcast, if you've read the blog post, then you will already know what's coming. However, you'll miss out on all of these wonderful asides and, uh, I guess, mistakes. Uh, you know, just little added things. So there we go. So that's what's going to happen. Although I do have an interview lined up with a dietitian, a professional dietitian. I'm very, very excited about this because lunchboxes seem to be coming into the zeitgeist a little bit. And I'm going to talk about my other website and my other blog, which is more focused on parents. All of that later on. But now let's talk about why children misbehave. You are not going to like the reason. With information into the world of education and tips on how to survive teaching, I'm Mr. M. These are my musings. This week, I realised, much to my own frustration, that I'm kind of doing a sort of literature review. Why is this the problem? Well, it's not really. It's great for you because you get to have a quick digestible version of three, four different research papers about behaviour. It's a problem for me because every time I end up doing something like this for fun, my wife suggests either embarking on a PhD or writing a book. And deep, deep down, I know she's probably right. But if you've ever read my posts on completing my MA in academic assessment, then you'll know how I feel about writing academically, which still leaves the book idea, but that takes time and imposter syndrome is real. I don't know though. What do you think? Let me know in the comments or tell me on Twitter. Should I go for a PhD? Should I write a book? Should I keep doing what I'm doing? Should I just stop everything? Don't tell me that. I like doing this. Be be kind. Anyway, back to this week. I'm not sure if you know what a literature review is. It's just a summary of peer-reviewed papers. So academic papers that people have written, submitted to other academics who have read through it. It's supposed to have checked all the facts and make sure that everything kind of checks out. Doesn't always work that way. And then they get published in journals and people use them in their essays, and that's that's how it works. So the idea behind it is to get an idea of what has already been discussed, researched, proven or disproven before you try to test your own unique hypothesis. So what inspired this little jaunt into academia? Well, of all things, it was TikTok. Well, actually, it was a YouTube short, but it was lifted from TikTok, and let's not get into that. The exact video is linked in the blog post, which is also now the show notes, but I will summarise it for you. It's basically a lady who says when children misbehave, they're mirroring emotions that they've read in you. She goes on to talk about toxic relationships, but I stopped listening at the children are empaths bit. 
And I started thinking about my own child, who, like I said, is nine weeks old. It's certainly true that despite any training or the ability to communicate verbally, he's already pretty adept at reading a room. If I'm tired and stressed out during our 1am feed, he is less relaxed until I have settled myself down. His mood is a reflection of my mood. And then I started thinking about the children I teach and have taught. Now, if you're reading my blog, or you've been reading my blog for a while, you'll know that I'm a big advocate for telling children when you're in a bad mood. Just openly tell them and reassure them that it's not their fault. Unless it is, don't lie. Now, I've, I've always assumed this was simply modelling good behaviour. However, the act of owning my mood and recognising that no one in the room was to blame was a small act of catharsis for me and helped me to calm down. And because I was calm, the children were calm, the room was calm, teaching and learning could happen freely. The whole mood of the room was a reflection of my mood. Now, before I delve into the research, I want you to stop and think for a minute. Think back to the last time you had a truly awful day at school. A day when either everything went wrong, or the kids were acting up, or you just weren't feeling it, and ask yourself about the overall mood of the room. Was it a reflection of your mood? If it was, which came first, your mood or the room's? If we're being truly honest, I won't tell anyone, don't worry. It was probably not the room's. So I did a bit of digging through the research papers, asking do children mirror emotions and adding behaviour, because I wanted to know if behaviour management could be enhanced simply, simply by making sure that we are first calm. So if this is going to be even a little bit academic, I guess my hypothesis is, does misbehaviour in children reflect my mood as a teacher? Or perhaps does my mood as a teacher reflect misbehaviour in children? I had something about misbehaviour, my mood, reflections... Let's have a look at how to deal with this. Now, the first obstacle for us as researchers is to define what misbehaviour is, which means we first need to understand and clarify what behaviour is. It's a word we all use frequently, but have you ever stopped to think about what it actually is? It's not as straightforward as you might first think. See, it's something that we can modify. We can have bad behaviour and good behaviour. So when we say to children, just behave, what are we really asking of them? What is behaviour? Fortunately for us, we don't have to look very far. Ruth Mulls is a difficult name. Ruth McLenathan, who wrote in the Journal of Educational Psychology way back in 1934, offered the following definition. Behaviour is a socially evaluated and socially regulated product. It's a habit. It's the way we live our lives when the effect of social judgment is considered, which means it's a two-way thing. Our behaviour impacts others. There's a fantastic YouTube video that clearly exemplifies this. I've mentioned it several times before. It's called How to Order Pizza Like a Lawyer. If you haven't seen it, pause the podcast, go and watch it, come back, or finish the podcast, then go and watch it. I'm not your dad, you do what you want, but do watch it. It's fantastic. It'll change your life and it'll definitely change the way you deal with playground disputes. With this in mind, we can go on to consider good and bad behaviour. Only as researchers, we can't just go blundering in with our own opinions. Oh no, my friends, we need to find people who have already said the same thing. We must be seen to be standing on the shoulders of giants, you see. Our little bit of research is but a grain of sand on the dune of understanding. This is why academic research pains me. Anyway, if behaviour is living by a social contract, then bad behaviour is living in such a way as to disturb that social contract negatively, to worsen society in some way. This time we're going to turn to the words of Robert Stebbins, who posits that behaviour in children, specifically at school, can be described as bad when it impacts the potential for others to learn. 
This might sound like common sense, but to be properly academic in our pursuits, and that's important because if we're not, we could be seen as arguing from an emotional point of view and people won't listen to us, we need to have an agreed definition. So, misbehavior interrupts the teaching and learning. Great. Now we are all agreed on what misbehavior is, insofar as this essay is concerned, we can begin to look for the causes of it and explore whether or not it's a mirror of our own behavior as a teacher, right? Hold your horses. We've established what misbehavior is, a disruption of the teaching and learning. We haven't specified what that disruption looks like. Is it whispering to a partner during silent reading? Is it shouting out an answer when asked not to? Is it hitting, spitting, throwing objects? Any one of these could impact the lesson, but are they all considered misbehavior? This is an important question to ask ourselves because it directly impacts our response, and it's our response that children will react to. In my classrooms over the years, I have been okay with low-level talking, but a paper by Brian Wolverton found that the teachers in his research group considered it misbehavior. One way to mitigate against this ambiguity is to establish a set of school rules, and maybe even a set of class rules. This all goes back to existing in society, which has its own rules, and you could keep getting more and more microcosmic in scale. There's society rules, school rules, class rules, table rules, personal rules. The underlying point is the same. Everybody needs to know how to play the game. More accurately for our purposes, everyone needs to know when and how a rule has been broken. Otherwise, you end up with resentful children who feel unjustly told off for breaking a rule they didn't know about. But perhaps it's the acknowledgement of rule-breaking that's the problem. A paper by Andrew J. Martin suggested that praising children for following the rules, instead of reprimanding children for breaking them, actually resulted in more children actively looking to be seen following the rules. This is probably not a massive surprise, especially to anyone who teaches younger children where negative, reproachful rules like don't be rude are replaced with positive, encouraging rules like be respectful. I used to roll my eyes at this sort of syntax, but the data suggests that it actually makes an impact on the behavior of the class. Following this logic, when a child does break the rule, it's much easier to address the decision behind the behavior while at the same time avoiding frustration through ambiguity. If one of your rules is we are respectful to each other, and a child is talking so much that they interrupt the learning for others, remember our agreed definition of misbehavior, then it becomes very easy to explain to the child why they are in trouble. In fact, one of my go-to lines for any child who'd been sent to me, I was the teacher who every naughty child was sent to, this is very rarely a good idea, but we'll go into that next week. I used to say to them, which rule have you broken? There were only five school rules, so it was pretty easy for the child to recognize, or hard for them to hide behind, depending on your outlook, their social faux pas. And from then, appropriate sanctions could be enforced. Usually, these have also been agreed with the children. Again, I never saw the point of this until now. Well, but it, yeah, no, I'll be fair, until now, until I did the research. Absolutely recommend it now. Wherever possible, establish your school rule, your classroom rules, and your sanctions with the children. If they have had a say in what the rules are and what the punishments are, then they find it very difficult to argue against them. Brilliant. But let's not get off topic. A quick check of our hypothesis reminds us that we are looking to see if my mood as a teacher is reflected in misbehaving children. Well, if we're rewarding rule-following in a social sense, not a dogmatic, oppressive sense, and if those rewards encourage good behaviour, and good behaviour allows us to teach the children and the children to learn, then everything in the room is delightfully copacetic. My mood is good, the children's moods are good, we have good behaviour, everything is as it should be. But hang on, if that's the case, then surely badly behaved children would just be a myth. Clearly not the case, although for the record there are no badly behaved children, just children who sometimes behave badly. It's an important distinction. Well, 
Let's get back to what bad behavior is. It's an interruption of the teaching and learning for others, not for the self. This means that there's a certain amount of subjectivity involved. Earlier, I said that I had no problem with low-level chatter. You might be very different, deciding that any distraction is impeding the lesson. The participants of Brian Wolverton's study certainly thought so, and it's in this conflict of subjectivity that the problems associated with bad behavior are born. Anyone can misbehave. Anyone can stray from the agreed social rules of conduct. You, me, the children, everyone. That's not the problem. Most children, having broken a rule, will accept the consequences, often just a quick reminder of the rule, or maybe even the teacher eye, and move on with their day. Misbehavior, then, is not the problem. The problem is bad or unequal reactions to that misbehavior. I'm sure you've had the situation in your classroom. A child does something wrong, you tell them off, they go absolutely ballistic. Things escalate, situations get tense, and the atmosphere in the room sours. Then, when you look back or report to the teacher you've ended up sending the child to, it seems like the actual catalyst of the event is a pretty minor thing. You might even hear yourself saying that the child wouldn't let things go, or that they kept arguing and that made it worse. Maybe you'll completely disregard the initial rule-breaking and say that their behavior now is the problem. Here's the thing. Trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning. It's not their fault. It's yours. Now that's quite a bold statement to make, but I promise it's true. You see, the child doesn't react first. You do. You react to their misbehavior, and it's that reaction that determines how the rest of the interaction will play out. According to the mental health charity Mind, anger is the result of feeling unfairly treated. If you as the teacher feel that a child has broken a rule, but they don't, then any kind of reprimand is going to result in that child feeling unfairly treated, especially if they feel like others have also broken the rule, but are not being punished for it. This might sound extreme, but really it's just coming back to the subjectivity of the rules. Using our talking example, you might decide that child A is talking to help their partner understand the learning, enhancing the teaching, while child B is talking to distract their partner, detracting from the learning. So you reprimand child B and ignore child A. Seems totally justified to you, but to child B, who sees you singling them out for special treatment, it's entirely unfair. So what does the child do when they feel unfairly treated? They try to redress the balance, but they're just a child and they know, sometimes deep down, that you are the person in charge. So now they're starting to feel a little trapped. Often their first attempt is to completely deny any involvement. I didn't do it, or it wasn't me. Again, perhaps even more crucially, our reaction as teachers is the key to everything. The child has now made a public declaration that they are innocent and have not broken the rule. This isn't because they want to lie or because they're feeling particularly disruptive. It's because they don't want to fall outside of the society to which they belong. Children who behave badly are not popular. If you, as the authority figure in the room, double down and make sure that everyone in the room knows that yes, that child did break a rule and now has broken another one for arguing with the adult, then they're going to feel even more alienated. And so the cycle continues and it's a very quick cycle and it only goes one way down. One of the reasons for this rapid descent is that children who frequently misbehave are often children with low self-esteem issues, alienated from their society in some way, and they're more likely to feel unfairly treated more of the time. 
They're also more likely to feel the need to defend themselves. It's been suggested that their home life here is a factor in any way that they can, and this can result in argumentativeness. On top of this, because of their self-esteem issues, they often begin on the defensive back foot and can be subconsciously looking for what they perceive to be unjustified attacks. To top it off, the resulting public back and forth reinforces their belief that they are separate from their peers and it's just a big self-perpetuating mess. But I said it was your fault. It's not your fault that the child has family issues, and it's not your fault that they think less of themselves. You can't be blamed for someone else's reaction, that's entirely on them. So how is it your fault? Because their reaction is based on your reaction. Let's go back to the talking example. We'll pick up just after child B has told us they weren't talking. We know that they're trying to save face. We also know, as does the rest of the class, that they were talking, but we don't want that misbehaviour to escalate into a confrontation. So you make light of it. Really? You might ask, knowingly. Sounded like you. Must be my ears playing tricks. Hmm, get back to work. Now this works because the child knows they broke the rule, and they know you're in charge, and that's really important. The children have to know that you're in charge. People who are in charge don't have to prove it by winning every argument. In this scenario, the minor disruption was met with a reminder that the rules are being enforced by someone who is in control. It's calming, and it's reassuring. Would you like to make it even better? Don't tell the child off in the first place. According to a paper from 1973 called Influence of Teacher Behaviour in Preschool, to guarantee more children are on task, you should be giving fewer commands and less criticism. So instead of outright flagging the rule break, try saying something like, oh, I thought you were talking, I must be mistaken. Well done everyone for working so hard, keep it up. Now this approach was reinforced over a decade later when researchers found that positive teacher attention actually increased task-appropriate behaviour and decreased misbehaviour. I'm going to have to leave it there for this week because I've... The, the blog post is 3,000 words long, I've got stuff to do, this is the second time I've recorded this. But yes, so, here's the takeaway. Misbehaviour is when the learning is interrupted. But that's not the problem. The problem is the confrontation that results from you flagging that action. And you can, you can do it in a very calm way that encourages peace, or you can do it in a very, very volatile way that encourages arguments. Don't encourage arguments. Remember, your reaction. Your reaction is key. Their reaction is based on your reaction. Next week, I'm going to go into talking about why you should avoid sending problem children out of the classroom. It's something we've all done. It's something maybe as an ECT you've been encouraged to do, but it's a bad idea. The research is in, I'll tell you why next week, but I haven't got time this week. After that, the week after that, I'm going to explain, again, all based on research, why behaviour management is such an underdeveloped area of development. Can I say underdeveloped development? I think I can, I just did. There's a really interesting reason, and it's simultaneously obvious and surprising. But that's all to come. And also don't forget that interview with a dietitian, because for goodness sake, children should be allowed to eat what they want. Parents know their child. But that's all still to come. I'm going to have to edit this again. And, uh, and this room is really hot. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you everyone all over the world for listening. Do talk to me though. It's, it's really nice to get some back and forth going. It's happened a few times and it makes me ridiculously happy. Enjoy your weekend and remember, you can do this. You're awesome.
Mr. M's Musings, the podcast was written and edited by Carl Hadley Morris. The music is Busy City by Track Tribe. If you like what you've heard, please let me know by leaving a rating or dropping me a comment in Twitter. Similar content can be found at www.mrmsmusings.com and you can hire Mr. M to tutor your child or speak at your school. Head over to www.igniteeducation.co.uk or email info at igniteeducation.co.uk for more information. Thanks for listening and I will catch you next time. Our little bit of research is but a grain of sand on the dune of misunderstanding. Not the dune of misunderstanding. Wait, why is that noise? There is someone very angry. Goodness.